Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here with the Eat to Perform podcast. And today we have a very special guest, good buddy of mine, Dr. Michael Ruscio. So we've got another Dr. Mike on the podcast, so that makes it even that much better. <laughs> hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. I think I first met you at was it one of the Ancestral Health thingies, or was it Paleo Effects, like three or four years ago? I think it was Paleo Effects, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was Paleo Effects 2014 where we first met, and we had a nice conversation about exercise. And, you know, some of my uh, undergraduate training was in exercise science, and so I'm used to knowing a decent amount about that topic relative to the other people I speak with, but I have to say I was very impressed with your body <laughs> knowledge there. And we had a nice, you know, I actually had a few few of the things I had learned and not really done much with from like 10 years ago that you had some updated information about and it was a nice it was nice to see someone in the exercise and fitness field who really had kind of an updated opinion rather than just kind of a uh do what everyone else does kind of uh you know mentality so I think that's where our uh bromance began (laughs) (laughs) and I think ever since then I you know I I come to you for all the counsel on exercise and um you know performance related stuff and uh, i like to think that you come to me when you have a question about gut and gut related stuff so it's a good little symbiotic relationship that we have yeah yeah no and was one of the cool parts too is that uh one of my little tests for people which i don't really do on purpose but is if people are presented with newer information are they interested in it or do they just kind of run away and i never hear from them again so to your credit you were interested and open to new information which i always thought that was pretty cool so i'm like oh well we'll get along just fine (laughs) definitely yeah and you make a good point it it is really important to not run away from new information it was one of the things that i noticed when i was a student a long time ago i was always a student who was reading a bunch on my own and I want to discuss some of that with my professors. And I noticed something very interesting very early on. The best professors, the professors that lectured nationally and internationally and, and were very well respected, they wanted to hear more about anything I read that was counter or different than what they have read. But the, the professors that seemed to kind of just be existing in their own little bubble and, and, you know, they weren't credentialed and they weren't speaking internationally and, and doing all these things, they would almost want to argue with me or try to convince me that I was wrong for bringing a new piece of information to the table. And all I was was, a, was an eager student looking to, you know, learn and discuss. And I learned that lesson very early on that, you know, usually the, the best minds are the ones that don't run away from information or try to make the counterpoint wrong they're open to discussion and and learning from anything that they can yeah a little analogy i've used i don't know if i've used it on this podcast before is that in general you want to always try to disprove your own ideas right because like the analogy of you know all swans are white and so you know guy spends his whole research career he's you know flying off to china everywhere else and he's documenting, you know, every little white swan he finds and he gets up to, you know, oh, here's, you know, 1,489, you know, and some guy in Mississippi wanders out into his backyard and goes, hey, a black one, and like puts a picture up on, you know, Facebook somewhere. And now his wonderful little theory that all swans are white is just non-existent anymore. So he should have been spending most of his time trying to find ones that are different colors, not trying to just confirm his own hypothesis all the time. 
Agreed. It's very hard to do, and it's 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 oh, yeah. easy to just look for more references that support what one already believes. And I, I think this happens in lots of fields. I think it certainly happens in my field of digestive health. And it's important that we don't do that because there's a lot we can learn by asking ourselves, you know, if we're wrong or what data counters this point. And the reason and why that's practical maybe for the people listening is because you want someone who's aware of the different options. Let's say, for example, like we're going to be talking about today, you have some sort of digestive ailment, or you're wondering if maybe some digestive symptoms like bloating are contributing to lack of performance gain or lack of body composition gain. It's, it's helpful to have a doctor or a provider who's aware of all the different information on the topic, not just selecting for you know, one niche of opinion within digestive health, because then if they do that, you're only going to get treatment regarding or that's focused on one niche of digestive health, and you're not going to have access to the broad array of different tests or treatments or opinions or methods. So that's why I think from a clinical or practical perspective, this sort of approach like Mike and I are discussing is important because it keeps your practitioner, your coach, your doctor, what have you, privy to a wide array of information, which ultimately only helps you get the result more quickly. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And that's one of the things I liked about you. And that's actually one of the reasons of many uh, that when I burnt myself out after finishing my PhD, that I actually basically crawled into your office and said that I needed a lot of help. <laughs> um, and speaking of that, I had all sorts of wonderful digestion issues at that point. But can you give people some of your background and how you got interested in digestive health? And then we'll jump into some topics related to that. Sure. In college, I knew I wanted to help people and I, I knew I wanted to become a doctor. But that's all I, all I really knew at that point. I thought maybe I would go into orthopedic surgery just because people told me you're kind of a more muscular guy and typically orthopedic surgeons or, or, or orthopedists in general need to be a little bit more fit or muscular. So being young, I said, sure, it <laughs> makes sense to me. Perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's it. Uh, so I was on the pre-med track and I, I also had a, a major of exercise kinesiology because I, I do have a background in athletics. I, I used to be a personal trainer in college um, I studied with the Czech Institute in college, and I also played college across. So I have a you know, pretty diverse background in, in health and fitness, but I wanted to go a little bit, little bit beyond health and fitness into more medical, I guess you could say, uh, areas. And like many people do, I had my own experience that helped steer me down the path. Uh, when I was 23 and in college and you know, up until that point, feeling about as close to invincible as you can get, right? Able to, you know, work all day, study all day, study all night, get up and do it again the next day, play sports, you know. I mean, I was taking care of myself. I wasn't burning the candle at both ends, but I, I felt like nothing could take me down. And rightfully so at 23, I think that's kind of normal. Until, for some reason, I started having fatigue, really bad insomnia, bouts of depression, started feeling cold. Uh, later, I started having really bad brain fog in reaction to meals, and I saw three conventional doctors trying to sort out what, what was wrong with me, and all the testing came back normal, and there didn't really seem to be anything wrong, which of course is really upsetting. Mm -hmm. 
and it wasn't it wasn't until I found a integrative doctor that practiced functional medicine and within functional medicine had a focus on digestive health that we determined I had an intestinal parasite, actually an amoeba, amoeba histolytica. That's horrible. Yeah, it, this is definitely a very pathogenic organism. It can it can kill people in third world countries because it can cause dehydration, death, secondary to diarrhea. Yeah, death um, by but, di- but, diarrhea just doesn't sound like a good way to go. Yeah, right. <laughs> not not the funnest <laughs> way. Um, now, I wasn't having any diarrhea, which is which was the interesting part about this. But I was I was having a lot of what we what we call extraintestinal symptoms, which taught me early on how there may be a silent digestive problem that could be manifesting as things like I had, insomnia, brain fog, depression, feeling cold. Um, so I, you know, I thought I had hypothyroid and low testosterone and all this other stuff. And really it was just the fact that this organism was causing so much inflammation in my digestive tract and that was throwing off how my hormones were being metabolized and, and how my brain was functioning. So I... Saw this doctor, we tested for the parasite, found it, treated it. I was young and dumb and didn't decide to retest. To and, and I didn't know this at the time, but I still had the parasite. And so I felt a little bit better for about a month. And then eight months later, I was feeling worse than even I was before. I went back to the doctor and said, you know, what do I do? I feel like I'm going crazy here. I thought we figured this all out and now I'm worse than I was before. And he very calmly and practically said, well, did you retest to make sure that we clear the infection uh-huh. as I had advised. And I said, no, I wanted to save the $300 on the stool test because I'm, <laughs> I'm a college kid. I'm a cheap kid. college student, man. What yeah. do you think? <laughs> and so when I, exactly. And so when I retested, it was still there. Um, and so that was a real kind of proverbial kick in the groin. But it also taught me how important it is to address an issue in the gut because in that eight months that I got worse, I really jumped down the whole of thinking I had adrenal fatigue and low testosterone and hypothyroid and I was self-diagnosing and treating with different herbs and supplements and what have you and I never really got any better and so that taught me a really important lesson that after diet and lifestyle are pretty good it's usually a really good idea to investigate some sort of digestive problem because that can manifest itself as a whole litany of other conditions. And so that, that really taught me that firsthand. And so I went into integrative medicine, uh, did my uh, graduate studies as a DC, did my follow-up training in functional medicine. And now what I do in clinical practice is try to take this wonderful field of functional and natural medicine and figure out what works well through looking at the research and also figure out what things were kind of nifty hypotheses maybe 20 years ago from some of the earlier generations but haven't been shown to be effective and where we need to kind of update some of what we do in functional and natural medicine. And to that end point, we perform clinical research. Um, we have data being drawn up for publication now in, in a peer-reviewed medical journal and we have two other studies that are pending to look at different digestive treatments and figure out what works well and what doesn't work well so that we can get people healthy quickly and be more efficient in our, in our care. So clinical practice, clinical research, I'm also writing a book and uh, yeah, pretty much talk about 
constipation, diarrhea, bloating, and <laughs> symptoms that might be coming from from the gut all all day long. Nice, nice. Um, so I think one of the the common questions is I think you touched on a good point that you know when I saw you I had finished my PhD and I I was under the under no illusion as to what I was doing to my body at at that point I just wanted to finish it and I figured out as long as I don't you know do anything that you know permanently hurts me then I'll be all right and spent the next oh man by the time I saw you it was probably ten months you know, working on nutrition, doing the training stuff and, you know, sleeping 10 to 11 hours a night as best I could. And at the end of that point, eh, was a little bit better, but something was, you know, really off. Is that kind of a similar scenario as to how people kind of find you in terms of, you know, they're doing pretty good with diet and exercise. You know, there's always maybe things they could improve a little bit, but they just kind of feel like they're not making the progress that they should. And is there other kind of indicators that they need to look at to determine when they need to go down to the next level? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a it's a great question, and I yeah I think there's maybe a couple types of people that make their way into my office. One type is definitely as you described, which are the people that have improved their diet, improved their lifestyle, and they've given that some time, and they're just not. You know, they're just not seeing the response that they want. In fact, if we were to make one broad category, I would say, you know, that would be the broadest category. People that, you know, should be healthier than they are, given their diet and their lifestyle, and they're not. I mean, there's also people that it's much more apparent. I've been diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease. My, you know, I haven't done well on the frontline anti-inflammatory therapies. My doctor's now recommending Humira. I've read the side effect profile on that. It scares me. What other options do I have, right? Or I have constipation type IBS. My doctor's recommended a laxative. It kind of works, but if I take too much, I have diarrhea. I'm also still bloated a lot, and I have reflux. You know, what else can I do to manage this besides a laxative and, and Tums, for example? So, yeah, that's that's another group of people that have existing or pre-diagnosed digestive conditions and are looking for, you know, an analysis on that specifically. But I think maybe more relevant to your audience would be people that should maybe be healthier than they are or performing better than they are, given their diet and their lifestyle. And that's certainly a group of people that it makes sense to go through a reasonable digestive evaluation to rule out anything being present that may be contributing to that, especially if these people have some digestive symptoms, like they're bloated, or they oscillate between constipation or diarrhea, or they have reflux. So, I mean, certainly, if someone's not getting the results that they want from a health and fitness, body comp, performance perspective, what have you, and they have some digestive symptoms, and they definitely should have a good digestive evaluation. Uh, And then, of course, it's also not a bad idea if they're still not as healthy as they should be and they can't figure out why, even if they don't have digestive symptoms, like in my case, it's still not a bad idea to have a GI evaluation to make sure nothing there is is wrong. Gotcha. So that brings us to the next two questions of, is there kind of, you mentioned the symptoms of digestion issues. What are kind of the common symptoms and then what would be the next step in terms of typical testing that you would do? Well, again, remember, there's kind of, you know, two ways we can answer that question. 
the, the typical digestive symptoms I'll come back to in a second, but there can also be a silent digestive problem that's not causing any digestive symptoms, but it's causing symptoms outside of the digestive tract. And this can be things like fatigue, insomnia, depression, weight gain or weight loss, um, maybe feeling cold, right? So these can look like adrenal fatigue or hypothyroid or, or what have you. So those can be occurring with the silent digestive issue. Even things like skin, skin eruptions um, or breakouts can occur. And, and we see this documented with celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Hmm. People that have unidentified food allergies can have conditions known as atopic dermatitis um, or other, other sort of nonspecific skin involvement or even brain fog. So this is certainly not a super left field, you know, progressive integrative medicine hocus pocus concept. The the you know a silent digestive disorder that's causing symptoms in other systems is definitely a partially validated concept. But back to the other aspect of your question, some of the common symptoms: bloating, constipation, diarrhea, or an oscillation between constipation and diarrhea. Reflux or heartburn, GERD, abdominal pain, belching, flatulence. Those are some of the most common digestive symptoms that people will experience. Gotcha. And if someone comes into your office having those symptoms, is there kind of uh, what would be sort of the follow-up you would do in that case? Well, the first thing that we typically do, and again, part of it depends on where the person is when they first come in. Yeah, it's right? a pretty general on the, question, but... Yeah. If someone's on the standard American diet, we start with just basics of drinking water, eating a whole foods, maybe a paleo-type diet, you know, some of those broad strokes. You know, more targeted to maybe someone akin to who's in your audience, someone who's eating a halfway decent diet. And then from there, we may offer a... We usually do two things, actually. We make a few recommendations, and then... While um, someone is giving those recommendations time to either take effect or not take effect, we have them do some testing. So what it typically looks like is you come in on day one, we order some tests. While we're waiting for the test results to come in, we'll have you try a couple maybe dietary modifications and something like a probiotic and an enzyme formula maybe an adrenal support formula and then we'll follow up a few weeks later we'll see what kind of impact we're getting from some of the basic supports like a probiotic and enzyme adrenal support and then we'll also see what the labs show and we'll determine what our course of action you know from there should be gotcha and is that specific enough or do were you, yeah, you want me to go into more no i think that's fine because um, i think one of the things with a lot of functional medicine is that and i've I've seen this from people that I've talked to and referred to you and referred to other people in their local area is that there seems to be a wanting to test everything under the sun till people realize one, how expensive that is. <laughs> and two, yeah. a lot of times it's not, I don't think a hundred percent as you answered in your question, they're necessary to go with right away. But I think the flip side of that is some people will not, do anything different until they see direct data that says, oh, you should do something different. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. How do you kind of, I guess, balance those two with, with people that come in? Because I know you, 
you obviously do testing you do follow-up testing but you're not you know let's test everything under the sun and your bill's like 10 grand and away you go right it's actually a really great question that you ask and a really important point because we do have a very delicate balance to achieve which is doing enough testing to tell us what we need to do to get the result but not doing so much testing that we're wasting money and I think the latter happens more often than not, unfortunately, in functional medicine, not because anyone is intentionally doing it. I just think the field has inadvertently wandered into a very testing-intensive territory, and I think you know the pendulum has swung too far in that direction, and now I, I like to think that doctors like myself are trying to help bring the pendulum back to center a little bit more reasonable of a testing approach. Um, I think how one achieves that, a lot of it has to do with the education of the provider, right? Of course, if you understand what tests are not valid or offer no clinical benefit and where you can just try something empirically, I think it's much easier to get a patient on board with something like that. For example, we don't really need to do testing to try a probiotic because most of the trials with probiotics have just taken people with a constellation of symptoms like IBS and given them a probiotic and seen pretty impressive clinical results in most cases. So while we, if we really wanted to, we could do a really advanced stool culture to try to give you a readout on different bacteria families and then give you a probiotic that is targeted at those families, that's never really been done in any of the research studies. Right? So we could speculate as to doing that, but you know, really, it's not, it's not practical to do that. Um, I think food allergy testing is another example, and this is probably something that people will confront and maybe is a good practical example. In my opinion, and I think there's a good amount of data to support this, one doesn't really have to do food allergy testing to sort out their food allergies. You could, but you can obtain the same information by going on a really hypoallergenic diet for a short period of time and then reintroducing some foods and noting what foods you respond to in terms of what, what foods you have a negative symptomatic response to and what foods you're fine with. The reason why food allergy testing, I, I don't think it has a tremendous amount of utility, is because food allergy tests look at you know, depending on the type of test, predominantly they look at immune reaction. But there's different types of immune reaction. And now we're even finding that cooked foods versus raw foods can elicit different types of immune reactions. Yep. So if you have to test for all these foods raw, all these foods cooked, you're looking at $1,000 or more for your, or your initial food allergy testing bill. When you explain this to most patients and that we could figure the same stuff out but just having you go on kind of a strict diet for about three weeks and then, you know, bringing back in the foods you cut out and just trying to notice what foods clearly don't agree with you and what foods are fine. So you say, okay, $1,000 or that. Most people say, geez, I wouldn't mind saving the $1,000. The other thing that the food allergy testing doesn't take into account is there are compounds in foods that don't cause an immune reaction but can still cause an irritation type reaction. So some foods are very uh, prone to feeding bacteria 
and exacerbating symptoms of IBS, like gas, bloating, abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea. And these are known as high FODMAP foods. And you don't get an assessment of this on food allergy testing. There are also things like oxalates. Um, some foods are high in oxalates, and if people eat too much of this, they'll notice that they have a negative kind of gut reaction. Um, and there's tannins and lectins and these mm-hmm. different things and, and different forms of carbohydrates. Um, you know, like FODMAPs we talked about, there's also a specific, the specific carbohydrate diet, which factors out for different types of carbohydrates that can be problematic. So the food allergy testing is alluring, especially if it's marketed attractively. But clinically, in my opinion, I don't think we need to do a lot of food allergy testing if we have this dialogue with the patient. But you have to, you know, go through this short dialogue. And usually when I have this short dialogue with the patient, most patients say, okay, like, yeah, it seems like the food allergy testing is pretty expensive and it doesn't tell me everything that we need to know. And so if you're suggesting I go on this restrictive diet for about three weeks and then we kind of go through a reintroduction and we know what works for me and what doesn't work for me. Yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. So, um, in kind of a long winded answer to your question, I think it's important that the practitioner understands these issues because what I've typically found is that when I explain this to a patient, they get it really quickly. It's just, they may have come in just having had listened to a podcast on food allergy testing and how great it is. Uh, and they may be jazzed about that. And, you know, rightfully so, until they're presented with better information, they're going to want to do that. So uh, I think the way I achieve the balance is just understanding what tests offer a lot of utility and what tests don't. And I guess another important point along those lines is tests are only really helpful if they change the way you treat a patient. Right? Yeah. I, don't need, I don't need a test to tell me to put you on, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not well, to tell me to put you on an anti-inflammatory hypoallergenic diet for a little while. I don't need a test to tell me to do that. Um, now, if we're not sure if someone's diarrhea is coming from inflammatory bowel disease, from a parasite, or from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, then testing is helpful because those three are treated differently, right? So an important you know, piece to come back to always is will this test have a appreciable impact on how someone's treated? Um, so that's something that I, you know, if a clinician is asking themselves that question, you know, is this test really helping me treat a patient? Is it, is it critical in guiding the treatment? If, if your doctor is asking themselves that question, eventually they should be able to weed out the tests that aren't highly beneficial. Um, so, you know, and I, I want to also leave, leave, you know, open that I'm open to food allergy testing for, for rare exceptions, but I think as a general rule, most people won't need to do food allergy testing. Um, and I'm not sure, Mike, have, have you guys talked at all about microbiota testing at all on the show? No, we have not. All right. Well, maybe we'll just segue over that because that gets into a whole, <laughs> kind of a whole niche in and of itself. But I yeah. think I think maybe I can leave those concepts there, and uh, I guess maybe pause for a minute if there's anything that you wanted to add yeah, to that. Yeah, I just yeah, I think that's a good point because I had this discussion quite a while ago with my wife because she has uh, some hard times with gluten, and so we had talked about well, you know, maybe you should go in and have like an actual you know test done, and there's different types of tests, and some of them if you know, it can be more invasive in that matter. And I said, well, 
we've done the experiment multiple times and in general you know she does much better by avoiding it so if the test came back and said nope you don't have any gluten issues we probably wouldn't believe it because it <laughs> doesn't right. seem to match what we have and then if it it says oh yeah you have some you know intolerance to to gluten we go oh well yeah we we already know that <laughs> so <laughs> kind of to your point there that it it wouldn't really change anything either way you know and one other point on, on food allergy testing a, a buddy of mine a couple of years ago i was visiting him and he was having some some issues and had a whole bunch of different food allergy tests done and you know he kind of had sort of adrenal insufficiency adrenal fatigue whatever word you want to associate with it felt like crap sure. didn't have any energy you know all his hormones were kind of out of whack and he had just laundry lists of stuff that were just you know off the chart no good you know that type of thing and then fast forward he works with the functional med doc they do a bunch of stuff and gets retested six months later and lo and behold you know probably 80 percent of the foods that were you know horrible for him before were now showing that oh not too bad right because his overall level of inflammation had gone down he's in a much better place his hormones had normalized he could exercise again he was sleeping so i think it just kind of exactly goes to show a little bit that i always think of it as in the in the the best case scenario ever it's only going to tell you the current state right now, which even is not quite as clear as what I think people would like to believe it is. Mm -hmm. And you make a really good point regarding food allergies. There's, there's something known as being panallergic. This is when people have many food allergies, several food allergies. And this is actually what I had when I was younger and still trying to figure out how all this works, I did a food allergy test and came back with 23 food allergies. Now, unbeknownst to me at the time, was the reason why I had 23 food allergies was because I had a parasite causing really bad leaky gut, causing me to have immunoreactivity mm -hmm. to all these foods. Sure. Right? When I, when I healed my gut, those food allergies went away. So that's what we try to do in the clinic is start with elimination reintroduction diet and then investigate other underlying causes of gut damage and inflammation and, and, and what have you and focus on those rather than focusing on food allergy avoidance. And, you know, something else regarding your wife and regarding, you know, celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, it's been fairly well published that if someone is non-responsive or only partially responsive to a gluten-free diet, there's a few things that should be ruled out secondary to that. One is SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm -hmm. Another is enzymatic insufficiency. And then, depending on if there's diarrhea present, another would be inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, there are, there are things that are practical to be ruled out. And just, you know, you, you hit the nail right in the head. If someone is gluten-free and still not feeling well, we don't need to quantify if... They need to be gluten free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're already doing gluten free. Um, you know, so it, it's it's really intelligent, I think, to look to, to think more laterally. You know, not keep going down the gluten tunnel, but say, well, what else could be present that could be causing this non-responsiveness or partial responsiveness to a gluten free diet? And like I said, and there's a few things there. Probably SIBO and uh, enzyme insufficiency are probably the two most common. 
Um, but inflammatory bowel disease, if someone has diarrhea, is another that should be ruled out. And then if you determine that, there are treatments that correspond with that. And, and you know, now that test has helped steer or drive the treatment. And so those tests were, you know, tests that were intelligent to do because of that. Gotcha. And related to that, if someone, if we could, you know, sort of look or do whatever testing and say that, person A's digestive system is, you know, top notch and in perfect working order. What do you think their odds of being sensitive to gluten are? Because my feeling is, and again, this is just my pure guess based on what you were saying before also, is that I think gluten tends to be one of those things that irritates sort of kind of underlying issues. And once you clear those may not be as bad as what we think. What are your thoughts on that? I think there's definitely a, a grain of truth to that. <laughs> no pun intended, but um, <laughs> it's a white rice grain. It's okay. <laughs> right. There's there's definitely some truth to that. That's that's uh, even been published in in the peer reviewed medical journals. Most notably is there are certain foods, typically uh, vegetables um, and, and grains and fruits, that have certain forms of carbohydrates in them that are complex and they require a lot of enzymes in order to be broken down and absorbed appropriately. And when the intestines are damaged or inflamed, the areas of the intestines that make those enzymes are damaged. And so you don't have as much enzymes and you can't break down these hard to digest and hard to break down carbohydrates. And when you don't break them down, they can cause irritation or gas or bloating or diarrhea or constipation or what have you. And some of the gluten-containing grains are high in these compounds. Uh, so aren't some other foods. So, yes, uh, as, as someone's digestive tract heals, they should be less sensitive to gluten and other food allergens. Now, there are some people that are very sensitive to gluten, and they typically... They may see a, an improved tolerance, but they may never be able to get away with gluten, you know, even as an occasional treat, because they may notice when they have gluten, they don't feel well for a few days or maybe even longer. That's a fairly smaller subset of people, and usually those people know it, right? They, they may see other food allergies go away, their digestion and health improve overall, but they still can't really get away with gluten. And for those people definitely just practice a level of gluten avoidance that's correspondent with your um, level of reactivity. But to your question, yes, people should be much less reactive to foods, including grains that contain gluten, as their digestive tract heals. Yeah, and that kind of matches sort of my wider, bigger philosophy that the higher your performance is and the more quote-unquote healthy you are, I think that's a pretty good marker for capacity. Right. So I think that you could expand this to all sorts of different areas, right? Your ability to run your body using primarily fats, your ability to then consequently use carbohydrates, your ability to eat a wider variety of foods and still feel and look and perform okay. Uh, to me, that's kind of a good marker in terms of the direction to go, that it's more of a expansion, not necessarily always a restriction, but I think to get to that, sometimes you need to restrict certain things that are obviously being an irritant or causing you problems so that you can then heal and get back to a better state. It kind of reminds me when I was in the 
Caribbean years ago, I was windsurfing and I stepped on a sea urchin, which I would not recommend anyone to do because it really hurts. <laughs> um, I had a booty on and so it caught about half of it, but every night I had to go sterilize a knife and dig into the bottom of my foot and try to dig these little things out of my foot. And next day I would get up and like, oh man, it still kind of hurts. So this goes on for about four or five nights till I finally get home. And But once I got the last little thing out, and what's interesting is that they're kind of brittle, so they tend to break off easily and they're hard to get out. That's too mm. cheap to go to the hospital, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend people do this on your own. So don't do this in your own bathroom. But once I got the last little thing out, you know, the next day it looked pretty good, you know. So I think once you remove those irritants, then you're giving the body a chance to heal and move in a better direction. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I, I think it's important to mention that after we go through our initial therapeutic phases of healing, the goal is to get the diet as broad as possible. And sometimes that's left out of the dialogue and, and people yeah. people get on a progressively more limited or more narrow diet, which again is okay in the initial phases when we're trying to heal. Um, but the long-term objective should be to try to get someone to the broadest diet possible and identify where their dietary boundaries are. Yeah, it's, it's a really important uh, piece of the the puzzle. And something else I think is worth mentioning is that especially for people that are training a lot. Sometimes it's that stress load of training that weakens the gut that needs to be addressed in order to allow healing to occur. And now there are dietary strategies one can use to help facilitate that gut healing. Like a low FODMAP diet may help in athletes that are maybe borderline overtraining or overreaching and starting to experience some digestive upset. And there are also things like elemental and semi-elemental liquid diets that are very easy for the GI to absorb and break down. And these can be used as part of the overall approach. But sometimes, and I'm sure you've talked about this, Mike, with, uh, with maybe heart rate variability or, or other measures, it, you know, if someone is under too much stress, that has been shown to contribute to you know, damage in the gut and changes in bacterial colonization. And this is probably why we see um, in those that do marathons, for example, or for those that are overtraining, that the incidence of infections goes up because yeah, of, of immunosuppression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you know, sometimes it's not all about getting rid of a you know, gut imbalance or dysbiosis or fungus or SIBO or what have you. Sometimes equally as important is just changing the you know, over stressing of the system that's driving that. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent with that. And, you know, some of the clients I've worked with initially in my head, I'm thinking, yeah, you may need a referral to a functional med doc, but it's hard because they're sometimes when they come in their nutrition and training and everything is just so out of whack. It's like, if I refer them right away, I, I usually tend to wait just to try to get you know a little bit better nutrition. We'll pay attention to you know what foods you can digest and what seem to be the issue. Maybe you can not have four cups of coffee before you train at the local box eight times a week. You know maybe we can do three. <laughs> you know just yep. because I've seen the reverse of that. I've had people come to me who were seeing a functional med doc. One guy in particular a couple of years ago, and. Holy crap, man, he was spending like several thousand dollars every other week, was on everything under the sun, 
but he wouldn't change his training. His sleep was horrible. His nutrition wasn't very good. And he was all upset. He's like, dude, I'm, I'm spending all this money and nothing's working. And I'm like, mm. yeah, you're, resting heart rate is 81 your hrv is like 47 <laughs> you know your right your poor yeah. body is stressed out of its mind you know until you start removing those stressors and you know training less and you know doing other things and not a lot's really going to move the needle that much you know there's probably things you're doing that are helping but in terms of you seeing that difference you know you've, you've got to kind of mm-hmm. again it goes back to the irritant right you got to kind of remove those those irritants in order and give the body a chance to heal and move in the right direction. And you know, it's it, it's it's saddening to me when you have someone like a like a type A athlete overachiever. They're not feeling well. They come in and they're super motivated. You know, they'll, they'll oh, do yeah. anything. And then sometimes they just say, "You know, Doc, I'll do anything." And I think sometimes that unintentionally gets taken advantage of mm-hmm. where the doctor well in a well-being um, with a well-being objective does way too much testing trying to find this elusive thing that underlies where they are. But I really think an experienced clinician can, you know, you should be able to see just in your initial intake with that patient, you know, does this person look like they're just doing way too much not giving themselves time to recover. And I've had female athletes have come in with, you know, that exact same profile and they'd be all for doing thousands of dollars of lab testing. And I tell them, listen, I don't think there's really anything wrong with you. There may be. And if there is, we'll figure it out. But what I want you to do for the next 30 days is, you know, something along the lines of cut your training volume by 30 to 50%. I want you to get one more hour sleep a night on most nights We'll put you on some adrenal support. We'll put you on some herbs to help coax your female hormones back into balance. And and usually what I say is we'll, we'll follow up in 30 days, but start with chunking that down into giving it a week. If you feel better at the end of that week, because I know you hate the idea of scaling oh, back yeah. your training volume. If you feel better at the end of a week, I want you to ride it out for another week. If you feel better at the end of that week, I want you to ride it out for another week. And give it a little bit of time and let's see how you do at your follow-up. And most of these women come back and most of the improvement they were looking to get, they've gotten just by doing that. You know, they may be 60% improved after one month. And I say, great, let's just keep the same plan rolling for another two to three months and we'll follow up. And if you're not where we'd like you to be, then, then we can do some deeper testing. And most of the time we've, you know, pegged most of the issues there. I mean, yes, maybe we have to do a small test and, and ferret out a, a minor issue, but you know, the need for this two to $3,000 worth of testing and tons of supplements is now gone because we've gotten at the root of the problem in that case. And that's, it's important that you know, for someone who's trying to find a provider that they feel like that's what they're getting from their provider, not someone who takes some, you know, it takes advantage of you being motivated, but it's trying to find the least invasive method of, of getting you healthier. And sometimes it's not something that you want to hear, but you need a different set of eyes and ears to look at your situation and say, yeah, I don't think you have hypothyroid. I don't think you have adrenal <laughs> you know, Um I, I think you're just overtraining. And uh, I mean, it's a delicate balance because you, you don't want to miss something. But I, I think for you know, an experienced clinician, these things should be fairly apparent when someone, like you said, is, is drinking you know, two caffeine beverages a day and exercising six to seven days a week and studying for their master's and they have two kids. It's like, where the heck are you recovering in this schedule? 
Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that's more common than not, which, you know, a separate subtopic is using... I mean, that's why I use heart rate variability. So if I have pretty much any new client I work with via online programming, I just require them to do it because I can't get any leverage otherwise. And I have a harder time with them seeing if they're better, right? So in the example you gave, which was awesome, they do that for a week. Sometimes they don't feel that much better. They don't feel worse. So, you know, you're moving in the right direction. But if they can say, oh, wow, my HRV is a little bit better. Oh, I am moving in the right direction. I have at least some confirmation that I'm going in the right direction. Okay, I'll give you another couple of weeks. Oh, maybe a couple of months. We'll we'll get it kind of figured out. Um, Because sometimes they dig such a massive hole. You know, you feel so crappy. Feeling just a little less crappy is hard to notice a lot of times. So, I agree. And that's what I like about, well, first of all, I, I love that aspect of HRV because sometimes it's exactly what you need, which is an objective way of, of quantifying progress. It's also what I like about using the adrenal supports and the female hormone supports, if it's mm-hmm. a female or male hormone support, if it's a male, is these, these things, you know, if, if we did nothing else but addressed the excessive stress, then eventually their hormones would balance out. But using something like an adrenal support or a female hormone support will help coax that change more quickly. And that's what's nice about some of these things is they don't, we're not putting hormones into the system per se, but we're, we're using things that help to kind of coax the body back into balance more quickly and, and help the athlete or the person see that response symptomatically more quickly. Cool. And speaking about balance, you had mentioned something about uh, bacterial balance. And uh, is this similar to, I know you had me do some advanced um, GI testing where, in essence, I had to play with my poo in the bathroom for <laughs> five days. <laughs> and I hope maybe my wife won't listen to this podcast. But I didn't tell her that I had to keep the samples in the fridge at that, <laughs> at that time either. But um <laughs> Maybe talk a little bit about that, and then do you recommend most people use a probiotic, and then what kind or what type? Regarding testing, you know, if someone's gone through the process, like we've talked about, of improving their diet and their lifestyle and giving that some time, then I think there's one or two things that are a really good idea after that. Uh, And like I mentioned a little while back, using a probiotic and an enzyme support and potentially an adrenal support also are just good general things to experiment with uh, initially. Um, And, you know, I I am, you know, for people that need a lot of help here, I am writing a book with with a pretty expanded like self-help section that will walk people through this step by step. Um, But the the long short of it is for, for a simple kind of starting point, there is a dietary twist one can try, especially if they have symptoms that are similar to IBS. So this might be any combination of gas, bloating, abdominal pain, uh, diarrhea, constipation, flatulence. This is a low FODMAP diet, F-O-D-M-A-P. And this restricts those carbs that are hard to break down and can feed bacteria. So if you go on the internet, you can just type in low FODMAP diet, or you can go to my website and type in low FODMAP diet and you'll see, I think we've done a couple podcasts on it and we have a few food lists there. Um, but it's essentially a, a list of foods that are high in these compounds and you want to avoid those for a couple weeks. Do that for a couple weeks and you'll either notice 
a, a appreciable change or you won't, right? If, so if it's going to help you within a couple of weeks, you'll notice improvement. If it's not going to help you after a couple of weeks, you can move on. Now, at the same time or after you try that dietary experiment, you can try a probiotic. And there's lots of probiotics, especially now that gut health is really coming into vogue. You're seeing, I feel like a new probiotic pops up every week. Yeah, they're all over um, the place. They're even in all the foods or, you know, like supplemented yogurt and all sorts of stuff. Like yogurt's always had them, but there's different specific ones that are supplemented, it seems like now. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe, maybe a, a summary of a good place to start with probiotics would be to try any one of, of kind of three classes. There's your traditional lactic acid-forming probiotics. These are typically a blend of mostly lactobacillus species and bifidobacterium species. So when you look in the label, you'll see lactobacillus this, lactobacillus that, lactobacillus this. You'll see bifidobacterium this, bifidobacterium that, and you'll see predominantly those. So that's one type, and it's definitely worth a shot. There's also a healthy type of fungus known as Saccharomyces boulardii, and you would just see on the label, predominantly Saccharomyces boulardii, maybe one or two other things, but you'd want to look for a probiotic that's predominantly Saccharomyces boulardii. And then there's a third that are known as spore-forming organisms, and these oftentimes have the prefix bacillus, B-A-C, I think it's B-A-C-C-I-L-L-I-S. These are known as spore-forming or soil-based probiotics. Uh, they're a different type of probiotic, uh, but those are, I think, three, you know, general classes of probiotics that are the most well-studied. The, the first two have the most research on them. The third has some emerging research and I think has some plausibility. So trying all three of those at once or trying one at a time or trying some kind of combination, doing a little bit of experimentation with those probiotics can be helpful. And then third and finally, a digestive support, and I think it's good to look for a formula that has hydrochloric acid, pancreatic enzymes, and bile. And that kind of covers three important phases of digestion. Um, and then adrenal support, I think the, the easiest entry point for adrenal support would be adrenal adaptogenic herbs. These are, these are things like ginseng, holy basil, rhodiola, and there's lots of different formulas out there that have a mixture of anywhere between, you know, three and six or seven of these herbs. And you can try, you know, one of those and see if you sleep better, if you have better energy, what have you. Sometimes people get a little bit too sped up from adrenal support. So you may notice that your heart's kind of fluttering, your, your palms are sweating. That happens in the majority of people, but it does happen and some people, especially if you notice that you're classically really sensitive to things. Um, so I shouldn't put those in my coffee in the morning, you're saying? <laughs> well, depending <laughs> on how sensitive you are, knowing, knowing the doses of caffeine you take down, Mike, I think you'd probably be okay. Um, but that's not a bad starting point. You know, try, try a low FODMAP diet. Try one or a few of those probiotics. Try a digestive enzyme acid supplement and try some adrenal support. And those aren't bad things to start with that people may get a decent amount of, of yardage out of just, just through trying those. And then what I'd recommend with a long-term plan is you know, stay on those things until you see your peak benefit. 
And once you've hit peak benefit, give that a few months, give that two to three months, ride the wave, and then try to curtail yourself off of these things and try to find the minimum number of these things and or the minimum dose of a given item that's needed to maintain the improvement. Because really in the long term, we want you to be on little to nothing in the long term. So make sure that you run the other part of the experiment at the end, which is getting yourself on the minimum amount of support needed to maintain the given improvement. Yeah, I think that's a good point that a lot of people forget that last part. Um, and that's something I've been trying to be much more you know, conscious about over the past probably a couple of years or so that I... Because you know, one, I, I think there's a time and place for supplements, as you mentioned, and that definitely can be good, especially if you've got things going on. But the flip side to that is if you always have to use you know, all these supplements for whatever reason, there's probably something going on you probably still need to you know, address. So, Precisely. Yep, and um, there's also the potential for unintended side effects. Right? We think that all supplements are benign, but there have been some trials done with certain antioxidants showing long-term use of different antioxidants and, and vitamins may have some detriment to them. So I, I think it's a good idea to try to always be as conservative with anything that you put in your body as possible. Cool. Well, as we wrap up here, um, related to digestion, for people listening, especially if uh, fat loss is kind of the main goal, which is obviously going to be related to health. What would be kind of the the top three things for the listeners that you would want them to do? Well, um, if someone's trying to lose fat, you know, I I think that the best data supports a lower carbohydrate diet. It it does look like all healthy diets are, you know, do vector benefit for weight loss. But some of the highest level science has, has shown an edge for a lower carb diet. So I think a lower carb diet wouldn't be a bad place to go. You may also want to consider along with that a low FODMAP diet because if some of the weight is from bloating and kind of this, you know, water retentive weight, then a low FODMAP diet may help with the bloat, may help with some of the water retention. Um, And if someone, I'm assuming they've been eating a generally healthy diet and their lifestyle is dialed in, after that, I think having a good Digestive evaluation is not a bad place to start. And testing for things like SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, for things like candida yeast, fungus, and then for things like H. pylori or other parasites. Parasites are much more rare than the other things that I mentioned, but not a bad idea to have those things ruled out. Um, Because we do have some preliminary research showing that treatment of these gut imbalances can help with weight loss and blood sugar and cholesterol levels. Um, and then for a third, boy, what would the third be? <laughs> um, yeah, I think a, a third that could, that could be beneficial, but you may want to check in with your doctor or provider on this one, is trying some sort of fasting or liquid fasting intervention. We use um, semi-elemental or elemental diets, which are liquid meal replacement diets that are meant to be hypoallergenic, and if they're hypoallergenic, they don't cause any kind of allergic reactions, and that helps with um, the immune system. It helps quell inflammation. It helps quell bloating. So um, if someone's having these digestive symptoms that are hard to respond, visiting a you know short course of one of these liquid diets can be helpful. And I think a lot of these are maybe the next evolution of 
you know, people may have heard of like these, you know, uh, pre-made cleanse programs where you make these shakes. Mm-hmm. I, I think where this is going to go for a lot of people, especially if people are sensitive and, and reactive, is you know the the value of the cleanse isn't the quote unquote detox support that you take, but it's oh, it's just used like it involves those toxins. <laughs> it's a whole other <laughs> yeah. show, but <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't think it's so much the toxins. I think it's just giving your body very hypoallergenic, very easy to absorb nutrients, and giving your gut a break from having to process those things. And the reason why I think this translates to bloat, weight loss, and weight loss in general is because arguably the primary source of inflammation in your body is your gut. And inflammation can thwart fat metabolism and it can cause bloating and edema and things like that and water retention. So to the extent to which we can get your gut healthy, we can help with a lot of those things. And on top of or in addition to the other items that we discussed, sometimes a hypoallergenic liquid diet that's either semi-elemental or elemental in nature is is not a bad play. But, you know, you may want to check in with the clinician on that because if you do these things too much or too long, it may not be a good idea also. So if you're someone who does it and you feel really fantastic, I wouldn't recommend doing it in the <laughs> long term without checking in with somebody because you just want to make sure you don't do any unintended harm. Gotcha. I mean, you're saying a lower carbohydrate approach. Is there like an approximate amount of carbohydrates you're talking? You're not You're not talking like a ketogenic diet, but... Any any ballpark number for that? Yeah, I think most of the studies, and it's it's hard, because, you know, to give a narrow range because, uh, uh, you know, what I'm referring to has been found via systematic reviews where multiple multiple studies have kind of been summarized, and that's been the finding. So we can give a range for what most of the studies use, and I believe most of the studies use as a low carb diet, anywhere from like 30 grams a day to around 100 grams a day, um, and. What I think might be a viable approach is to have someone start a little bit lower on the end of that spectrum, maybe around 30 to 50 for like a week and see how they do and then kind of slowly increase their carbs and see, you know, where they can be to maintain some fat loss, but also um, not be going so low carb that they may, you know, be depriving themselves unintentionally. So I know that's not a super clear answer, but I would start low and then kind of slowly, you know, slowly titrate your way up and see if you can find a point where you seem to maintain weight loss, but also don't feel like you're deprived. Uh, and some of the symptoms of prolonged carbohydrate de- deprivation may be insomnia, fatigue, irritability, sugar cravings. Um, so those are just a few things to be on the lookout for. If you do go low carb, you've been there for a while. If you start seeing those symptoms and you may be overdoing it. Yeah, I gotcha. And that's always a, that's a whole other show too, because as people start training more, obviously they're going to need a little bit more on carbohydrates. And as you know, from most of those studies, they're not necessarily looking at people who are really hard training or anything like that either. So it's just more of a, mm, they're going to throw a dart and we're going to grab, you know, this range and eh, people are active, but they're not really training that hard, that type of thing. So, yeah. And there's another aspect to it, too, that, and I think you've discussed this uh, quite a bit, Mike, is shifting around your macronutrient ratios because yeah. at, you know, after you've made that initial dietary shift and gotten some of the benefit from it, you may do best with kind of shifting around periodically from 
you know, lower carb and then for a short period, lower fat to kind of keep your metabolism guessing and, and to prevent yourself from becoming metabolically stagnant. And I think there's, there's some plausibility to this from a developmental perspective where, you know, many, um, traditional cultures kind of ate with the seasons mm -hmm. and your macronutrient consumption swang with the season. So, you know, eating in, in somewhat of an oscillatory fashion like that, you know, may not be a bad idea for someone who's a little bit more advanced to the dietary discussion. Yeah, no, I agree with that because it's, you know, it goes back to metabolic flexibility, right? And you want to maintain the ability to use fat when needed, but if you're training harder, you definitely still want to be able to use carbohydrates. And unfortunately the average person just doesn't exercise that hard and lives primarily on carbohydrates and they're stuffing them into a body that I can't really tolerate them. So, but that's a whole nother show too. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, that's awesome info. Thank you very much. And, uh, where can people find out more about you? People can go to my website, which is just dr. com. That's D R R U S C I O dot com and there's there's quite a bit quite a bit of information on the site if people have specific questions they may want to just try our search box function because um, that may help them find something you know most relevant to what they're curious about more quickly uh, but yeah there's a lot of information over there and there's also a newsletter sign up and you know if you sign up for the newsletter every time we release either a podcast or an article or a video You'll just be notified in your inbox, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much the best way to, to track me down. Awesome, and uh, if people want to see you in person in your office, where are you located? I'm located in Walnut Creek, California, which is just outside of San Francisco, and I do do appointments via Skype and via phone if someone's not in our area but still wants to be seen. Yeah, because I know that's what I did when I was out there for a conference. I came up and saw you in the office so then I could work with you after that too. So that's definitely an option for people if they're not necessarily living in your neighborhood also. Yeah, it's a really nice thing about the emerging field of telemedicine is it, it's making it a lot easier for people to get access to the care that they need. And it's nice to even see some hospital systems are starting to adapt that because, gosh, I mean, if you're living in New York City and you need to go in for a simple checkup, oh, yeah. you know, the traffic the traffic can be debilitating. So it's, it's nice to have some of these options emerging, definitely. Cool. Well, thank you very much for all the great info there. That was super useful. So much appreciated. Absolutely. It's always fun talking with you, Mike. All right. So thank you very much. And we will probably talk to you again soon. And that's it for the ETP podcast for this week. So I'm Dr. Mike T. Nelson. We're talking with Dr. Michael Ruscio. So be sure to check out his stuff. See you guys. <laughs>